association to discuss the key takeaways for emerging markets from our investor seminar at the time of the IMF World Bank spring meetings in Washington. I am Luis Oganes, uh, Global Head of Macro Research. I'm joining this conversation with my colleagues, uh, Sat Siddiqui, who focuses on emerging market strategy, and my economics colleagues, uh, Cassiana Fernandez, looking at Latin America, and Nicolai Alexandro, looking at EMEA. We were all in Washington last week. Uh, we hosted an investor seminar uh, with over 50 sessions uh, looking at uh, various emerging market countries. Got uh, the privilege of having several policymakers and uh, uh, political observers discussing the region. Certainly a lot of information to process. So I'm going to ask uh, uh, Sat uh, maybe to start a conversation with you. I would say that overall the tone was not as negative as the the mood that we detected in October during the annual meetings in Washington last year, but certainly a lot of cross currents, so it is hard to say that people had a particular uh, conviction on one way or the other. So how would you characterize the mood overall and uh, what were the, you, would you say the key takeaway from the global uh, uh, setup that will matter for emerging markets in particular? The recession that seems to be priced by U.S. rates and lack thereof that seems to be discounted by the U.S. dollar. Yes, thanks, Luis. So coming into this uh, spring meetings, um, uh, I guess one would have assumed that a lot of the conversation would revolve around the recent banking sector stresses that we've seen in the U.S. and Europe, and some of what the you know spillovers of that would be into emerging markets. Clearly, a lot of talk about the Fed and Fed policy, um, you know, and, up, and potential upcoming U.S. recession. So that did not fail to disappoint. I mean, a lot of the conversations at the global level really were about um, the Fed. Uh, have they gone too much or do they have to do much more? Uh, is there going to be a U.S. recession down the line or not? Um, and I think for a lot of these questions, we came back really without any definitive answers. So to your point about there not being all that much conviction, I would uh, definitely echo that. Um, it was hard to, and I think, you know, if you had these conversations maybe a few weeks earlier, the mood probably would have been a lot more negative, just like we had in October. But the fact that markets rallied pretty significantly after the action to kind of backstop um, some of the stresses we were seeing both in the U.S. and Europe really eased the mood of investors quite a bit. So coming into uh, the spring meetings, you know, things were looking a little bit better, but I think the, the, the horizon ahead of us does still look uh, very cloudy. Um, if there were one consensus view that came out uh, of these meetings, it was probably that the market is pricing in too many cuts too early for the Fed. So that was at the global level. And I think for emerging markets, uh, there was generally a sense that at least for you know, some of the higher yielding markets, both in local and in credit as well, there's a lot of idiosyncratic factors at play which makes those markets, whether say it's a Brazil on the kind of local side or an Egypt on hard currency uh, side in the frontiers, those are very idiosyncratic stories, not really uh, highly dependent on what the Fed is going to do. Beyond that, a lot of talk about the geopolitics of 
you know, US-China relationship, what's next, how far the tensions going to go, uh, questions about the war uh, in, in Ukraine as well. And I think on that, we didn't really get a lot more new uh, information about where it's headed. It's more about status quo uh, is going to remain. And finally, one thing that did stand out to me is uh, really about where we didn't have that many questions and conversations with investors. And that was about a China reopening. And you would have thought that in any other um, world, uh, we'd be talking a lot more about the reopening in China, given how you know, big a deal that really is. Um, but it was really overshadowed by discussion about the US and geopolitics and some of the idiosyncratic factors in EM. So let me stop there. Thanks, Satya. You raised many of the issues that were um, brought up uh, during the session. So let's start to focus on some of the individual uh, regions and countries. So maybe starting with Latin America, uh, Cassiana, according to the audience survey that we took and uh, several sub conversations, actually, two countries in your region, Brazil and Mexico, uh, you know, seem to be where investors are actually expecting some of the highest returns, particularly in local markets. What do you think expects, uh, explains this in a rather constructive view about uh, Latin America in this kind of environment? And uh, would you say that policymakers and the expert presentations that we had on Latin America kind of validated or corroborated these uh, rather constructive views? No, thank you, Luis. I think that's first taking aside some home bias, in particular due to the strong show of Brazilian investors in the conference, as usual. Uh, but I think that uh, this time, I mean, there are significant cyclical and structural reasons for the preference in Mexico and Brazil. I mean, first, as I pointed out, somewhat a more downbeat uh, view on the global growth, not as much as it would have been like a month ago, but it's still quite downbeat. The region was the first one to hike rates to respond to the higher inflation. Levels of rates are uh, very high, double digits across the region. We are expecting that the peak in terms of rates uh, is already behind us. And then it's clearly the expectation that uh, it will be the first region to cut rates. On the structural part, I think that all this discussion about the geopolitical reasons, especially US and China conflicts, there is consensus understanding that America can benefit from that. The reallocation of global supply chains to the region, especially benefiting Mexico, the whole discussion about nearshoring, first Mexico, but also uh, Brazil, and this diversification of com uh, commodity supply uh, to the region can also be beneficial. If I would have, I mean, the conversations that I had with investors on the top of the presentations from the policymakers and experts, I would say that in the last, it was a little bit more, less constructive on the nearshoring regarding the timing for the flows. I think that we do, we do have a constructive view that uh, the region will benefit. But uh, the point is, this is a long-term story. There is still a lot of homework to be made in order for the region to actually attract those, those investments. And then on the cyclical part, I think that the message from the policymakers is that it's too soon. Uh, too soon to talk about rate cuts. They still need to be more 
confident that inflation is finally going to convert back to the target paths. And if we look across the region, I mean, you still see uh, more resilience in terms of core inflation, uh, proving to be steeper than what uh, previously expected. And that has been putting the policymakers on their toes. And they all send the message that you need to, we need to be patient here. It defers uh, the timing uh, in some of the countries. I think that when we look at Indians, uh, more specifically Chile, Peru, they should be uh, the first ones to start to cut. Brazil is still in the end of the year, Colombia, but Mexico, for instance, given all the discussion on Fed, and uh, I think that they are closer to the Fed, probably something that would wait only to the beginning of next year. Interesting, Cassiana, uh, that uh, central banks need to be protesting market pricing of early cuts. So, uh, Nicolai, switching to um, your part of the world, the uh, sea uh, and South Africa, we had presentations from uh, discussions from on, on these countries. So what was the message there? Uh, uh, are they validating expectations that as countries disinflate, uh, you could start to see rate cuts or not really? Thanks, Luis. I guess listening to to Cassiana you know and uh, hearing about uh, prudence in uh, Latin America where broadly speaking uh, real rates are higher than in EIM uh, it would be uh, a bit strange you know to to have a completely different uh, message uh, from this region so uh, it, it's similar uh, in the sense that central banks remain cautious um, in the case of uh, SARP, uh, they are even uh, leaning somewhat uh, on the on the hawkish side, and and the reason for that, the main reason for that, is because looking at the region more broadly, like I already kind of uh, uh, said, I mean, monetary policy stance uh, is rather accommodative, uh, even even if we look uh, on an ex ante basis, right? I mean, uh, projected inflation is is quite high relative to where uh, policy rates are, so. Uh, in an environment where inflation is not falling as fast as expected, uh, again, I would say it's just natural for the central banks to uh, to be prudent or cautious, uh, however you want to call it. Uh, there are obviously uh, some nuances here, right? Uh, one nuance is uh, Hungary. I mean, uh, this is a central bank which has uh, two uh, interest rates. One is the overnight rate at 18%, and that's characterized like a, a crisis tool, right? So there we can see uh, rate cuts and uh, potentially even soon, like like next month, right? I mean that that's uh, that's a possibility. Uh, but uh, uh, with the base rate, which is at 13%, it's unlikely there will be any movement there. Uh, in uh, Romania. Uh, the policy rate uh, is at 7% and the central bank has not uh, announced the end of the tightening cycle, right? It's a similar story in Poland, actually, right? In both countries, uh, the end of the tightening cycle has not been announced. Clearly, there is no plan to hike more. Let me make that clear, right? But uh, also rate cuts are not really uh, anytime soon uh, on the agenda uh, for these uh, two central banks. And and with the SARP, I already mentioned, right? Uh, there there is a bit of a, a hawkish bias there. After they hiked by fifty basis points, um, increasing the pace because uh, prior to that uh, they hiked twenty five basis points. Um, and the reason why they went in that direction is because 
the balance of risks around the inflation outlook has shifted, has shifted in a, a worsening direction, right? I mean, with the currency weakness, with the uh, February inflation print surprising to the upside. Um, so I think the way to think about uh, South Africa Reserve Bank going forward is if risks to inflation outlook and effects is included in these uh, uh, risks um, materialize, then uh, probably uh, we can see uh, SARB uh, uh, hiking more. Otherwise, if this inflation goes on as in the forecast, then uh, they can probably uh, stay where we are. So South Africa is actually a central bank where uh, the risk of uh, uh, hikes, it's uh, bigger than uh, in the case of um, CE. And I will stop here. One interesting thing about the presentations from central banks from Latin America and EMEA, I believe, uh, is that uh, there was very little reference or tying their hands to whatever the Fed does, uh, which is a contrast to what we heard actually from the Asian central banks, uh, where obviously inflation was not much, as much as a problem as in the other two regions. They didn't have to hike as much. But they're certainly, you know, the the fate of what comes next uh, in their policy decisions. They themselves are tying their themselves to, to to whatever the Fed does. So an interesting contrast there. So Sad, uh, uh, back to you. Um, how are investors uh, thinking about the relative merits of EM rates versus EMFX versus EM credit? I would say from what I heard, uh, there seemed to be a lot more constructiveness about EM local markets versus EM hard currency debt, which to be honest, I don't recall this happening in EM, sorry, in IMF conferences in a long while. Yes, Luis, that's, that's absolutely right. So coming into this conference over the last few months, you know, the consensus trade amongst investors really has been to receive EM rates, especially in Latin America, and that's because to the points Cassiana was making earlier is that Latin America seems to be the place where real rates were high, where we're seeing signs of disinflation and, and, and investors wanted to get early on uh, in that trade. So that's where the consensus was. Um, I think some of that consensus was probably challenged uh, by what happened in March, because first, when you had all the volatility in U.S. rates, that uh, made it much more difficult for investors to hold on to uh, their rates positions uh, in emerging markets as well. Um, so that's where the consensus was. Uh, on the FX side of things, I think investors really haven't had a very strong view on currencies over the course of the last few months. There has been uh, a bit of a bias to be short uh, dollars given how expensive the dollar looks on kind of very long-term um, kind of on, on kind of long-term uh, valuation grounds, but really it wasn't something that uh, was a big trade. And then on the credit side, I think investors really have been kind of bifurcated. They have been looking at the high yield, the special situations markets. Those are very idiosyncratic and it's hard to group them all together. So that's really been on a case-by-case -case basis, whether it's the Pakistans or Sri Lankas or Egypt's, uh, you know, and, and kind of Tunisia's of the world. That's one camp. And then on the IG side, it's been mostly about taking its cue from what's happening in kind of U.S. corporate credit and, and following the general beta of global credit markets. So what has changed about that consensus view and position uh, during the course of the last week and what have we learned to 
uh, to kind of inform those views. Uh, so first of all, I think probably investors came out of um, this being a little bit more confident on the kind of a dollar weakening run to continue from here. So there was a concern, and indeed in our own research, we were flagging this, that after the banking stresses of last month, it could open up the chapter for some more dollar strength as the dollar would trade on the so-called left-hand side of the dollar smile, you know, so where you get the safe haven bid for the dollar when things globally seem to wobble. But I think investors came out of that thinking, you know, a U.S. recession, it's clearly a risk, but it's not something that's very imminent. And that means there is more of a uh, of a runway to go for dollar weakness. And that's why I think indeed over the last week, we, if you look at the performance of um, some of those high yielding, high real rate currencies like BRL, for example, uh, or Mex Peso, um, they've actually done quite well. Um, so they were rallying through last week. And I think that was probably some of that consensus of bit more dollar weakness runway to go uh, showing up. I think investors are still in the rates trade as well, although I think um, as Nikolai and Cassiana discussed, there's probably uh, a bit more food for thought about how imminent any rate cuts are going to be. I don't think investors are probably going to throw in the towel on that, given the levels are overall still all right uh, for you know receiving rates, given the disinflation is still ahead of us. But I think timing-wise, investors might need to be a little bit more patient uh, after the messages we've heard. I think that's an important takeaway uh, from, from the meetings. And then finally, on the credit side, I don't think uh, we learned um, much new, really. The idiosyncratic stories are still idiosyncratic stories, and the IG stories, are, I think, are going to take um, their cue still from what's happening uh, to the general and a risk appetite of global credit markets. Thanks, Sat. Cassian, uh, back to you. You mentioned uh, the reasons why investors may be relatively more constructive on LATAM in this environment, but um, there were also you know, many risks that were highlighted during the presentations. Uh, can you enumerate some of them, particularly on the political side? No, sure. Let me just start with some global, just on the back of Sad's answer, is that if that a dollar weakness does not happen. I think this is a, an important risk. If somehow we see things evolving in the global outlook, that we get stronger dollar, that can be a risk for the bullish, more constructive view in the region, particular Mexico and Brazil, uh, the view of this disinflation. Also, although, as you mentioned, this was remarkably not much discussed, but the China reopening story and its impact on commodities and effects, given that a lot of countries in the regions are commodity exporters, is still an important risk. The U.S. recession story, I think that uh, if it's deeper, can be a particular risk for Mexico, given the importance of remittances for the country. On the political side, I would say that, I mean, the usual known unknowns. We do have a very heavy calendar and we cannot forget 
uh, October election in Argentina looks like to be much more open and uncertain than what I expected. We did had a very interesting panel discussing and how much we don't know about what's going to happen. And I think that so far Argentina is not one of the preferred countries given the macro situation, but I think uh, this can be an important driver. 2024 election in Mexico, AMLO remains with a very solid popularity, but uh, should not run for re-election. So there's still some doubts there and uh, what uh, will be the candidates and what are going to be the policies after. And then the usual discussions about reforming the region, pension reform in Colombia, looking uh, for investors. I think that they were less worried than a couple of months ago. They they were on the proposal, especially when we compare from the campaign promises, the discussion about tax reform on Chile. It's definitely going to be an important driver. And in Brazil, all this discussion about uh, the new fiscal framework, tax reform, the need of fiscal adjustments. Lastly, let me just uh, one word, Kev, I think that uh, will be uh, important for the region as well. They don't know, we still do not know how much of structural changes on the inflationary process uh, has happened in globally, but after the pandemic, if this uh, high inflation can be proven to be more resilient, especially on the core. I mean, how much the models failed to project inflation during the pandemic and failed to project after the pandemic. I think that uh, it's going to be extremely important for us to understand if the central banks are going to be willing to accept a slower convergence of inflation back to the targets. And that is what Saad mentioned, the discussion about the timing actually for the beginning of the easing. And we are probably going to see a lot of differences uh, among central bank on that willingness to accept a slower convergence back to the target. So Nicola, the issues that came up uh, in the discussions, which is interesting, is that two of the um, inflation targeting central banks in emerging markets, South Africa and Brazil, are actually considering changing their inflation uh, targets, uh, a reduction in the case of South Africa and a potential increase in the case of uh, uh, Brazil. Uh, you know, you could think that uh, you could uh, question, you know, the wisdom of doing this at any moment, but uh, when inflation is above target, it feels like particularly complicated of trying to do this right now. So um, uh, maybe, Cassiana, uh, Brazil actually did do this seven years ago in terms of reducing the rate, and now there is a discussion of trying to increase it. Can you just share with us, you know, <laughs> the, the, the implications of this and, and, and where do you think uh, this debate right now will end up? Uh, and, uh, and Nicolai, you know, what are your expectations in the case of South Africa? Will they accomplish this? And in trying to do so, given that inflation is uh, so above the, the, the existing target, whether that would render uh, monetary policy in South Africa, you know, to uh, hawkish, to stay hawkish for the foreseeable future? Definitely. So let me start. And there was a very interesting discussion that we were uh, having already. I mean, the difference between the two countries. Let's remember Brazil up to 2016, kept uh, the target 4.5 with a range plus or minus 2%, so from 2.5 to 6.5. Then gradually since 2017, uh, it started to reduce the range and also uh, the level of the targets. First two years, 17 and 18, uh, 4.5 with 1.5 plus or minus 1.5, and then 
25 base points each year. Uh, today we have uh, 325 into for 2023, and then to finally reach uh, what they consider to be the long-term uh, targets, uh, 3% by next year. Uh, exactly uh, this year, uh, I think that uh, the market uh, investors in general were surprised by some remarks uh, from the president, uh, Lula, uh, saying, questioning uh, the ideal uh, targets and if it were to, to be kept at 3% or not. Uh, we did see a significant increase in uh, inflation expectations from the agents already anticipating um, some change of the targets. Let's remember that during this period, during the seven years, Brazil actually delivered below the targets uh, for two years, uh, 17 and 18, uh, in line with the targets uh, 19 and 20, and then uh, the other years uh, above uh, the targets, uh, the target above five percent uh, or more. Uh, I, I think that one uh, important thing to keep in mind is that when they reduce the targets, uh, announce the reduction of the targets uh, back in 2017, uh, and at the same time uh, they uh, we approved uh, an important uh, fiscal adjustment, the spending cap, that the government committed to have a tight fiscal policy uh, for over 10 years, that has allowed Brazilian interest rates to go down significantly and markedly from above 14% uh, at that point to uh, below uh, up to a minimum level of 425 before the pandemic than uh, when it reached uh, the 2% nominal. So I think that this was uh, an important message, right? Uh, this credibility in terms of reducing the target, uh, more specifically uh, the, no the knowledge that uh, a higher target 4.5 would um, remain sticky, very indexations mechanisms that make inflation uh, more resilient, all the inflationary shocks, uh, more resilient. I think that uh, that has allowed uh, the change uh, for us to see uh, a lower uh, rates uh, in the medium term. It's still to be seen. I think that uh, this is uh, an open discussion. Uh, the government has signaled that the discussion is not going to be taken uh, before June. Uh, that's the deadline to set uh, the target for uh, the next couple of years. Uh, and uh, of course, there is a huge interest uh, from the market, some saying that this could be uh, a negative or uh, a negative uh, trigger or a positive uh, pending uh, on the decision of the government. Nicola, in South Africa. Yeah, this is uh, a very complicated topic, not just complicated. Uh, and why? Because it's a it's a trade-off between inflation and growth, right? And uh, it's a it's a question mark whether uh, by lowering uh, inflation, uh, growth in outlook is improved. It's it's really about that. Um, in South Africa's case, uh, the current uh, governor has already pushed. Uh, a reduction of the perceived target, so to say, right, to 4.5 from the band of 3 to 6%, right? Uh, and that happened back in 2016, I think, so some time ago. 
And now uh, it seems there is uh, another push, which is not necessarily new, right? Because this has been uh, discussed uh, uh, prior to, to pandemic as well, uh, to lower uh, the target to 3% inside this range. So one observation, it's that as long as you're inside the range, it's totally fine, right? I mean, there, there, there is no need for more approvals uh, from anyone, really, uh, if, if the SARB really wants to go uh, for a 3% target. However, uh, the other question would be, uh, why would this be, let's say, even a topic of discussion when inflation is 7%? Because inflation is, is, is quite high, uh, right? So we are uh, a bit far off from, from the 3%. So where this leads me is that this is clearly not a concern for this year or next year, right? This is more a topic over the medium to long run, and uh, similar uh, to what uh, Cassiana was was uh, talking about uh, uh, Brazil, right? I mean, the aim is potentially uh, to lower inflation to levels that will generate less indexation, that would uh, uh, reduce uh, uh, uncertainty and uh, would basically foster growth and would also reduce uh, cost, fiscal cost, and this way also uh, foster growth, right? So remains to be seen, but I wouldn't say necessarily on the back of this, SARB is going to be uh, necessarily more hawkish. I think what I said earlier uh, in this discussion uh, remains uh, remains valid. Nicola, I'm staying with you before we wrap up. Uh, there, we had several presentations from frontier market economies, uh, many of them actually in your region, in EMEA. Any key takeaways? Uh, what were the main issues of interest for investors? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, Saad already mentioned uh, Egypt, uh, I think, a couple of times, right? And I think this was high on the agenda for many investors. Uh, I would say the broad feedback on Egypt is negative. There is concern, once around cooperation with the IMF, uh, and two, uh, around large gross external financing needs and how uh, will Egypt uh, uh, face those. I would say the two are related in what sense? I mean, if Egypt does what's needed uh, to have the uh, first review uh, finalized and uh, uh, cooperation with uh, the IMF being uh, totally fine, then probably, you know, the, the issue around uh, um, sources to fund those large uh, gross external funding needs uh, are going to be found, right? I mean, uh, the IMF program actually assumes uh, there will be uh, more inflows, right? So presumably cooperation will not continue uh, without, uh, without that. So Yes, there is quite a lot of uh, negativity around Egypt. Uh, my or our uh, uh, view of the country is that uh, uh, cooperation with the IMF will continue. And at least for the time being, it's not that bad. Another country uh, which raised concern is uh, Tunisia. Uh, this is a country where uh, uh, staff level agreement was reached with authorities. Uh, in October last year, but since then there's been no progress. Uh, and it's still unclear whether there will be progress. There were some comments from, from the president which made uh, an, an IMF executive board decision for Tunisia uh, even more problematic. So this one also remains unclear uh, what uh, the progress is going to be, but I would say it's 
even less clear than Egypt, right? Because there is no uh, active program here. It's just a staff level agreement. Uh, for this one, discussions are ongoing uh, and we continue to believe that uh, eventually uh, there will be board approval in the case of Tunisia. Uh, and one factor here, it's similar to Egypt, large uh, gross external funding needs, uh, Tunisia needs uh, needs support. And Tunisia, given the migrants coming from Asia, from, sorry, from Africa, uh, is relevant for uh, European Union countries uh, too. Uh, final one worth mentioning, it's, it's Zambia. Why? Because Zambia, it's some sort of a template for a common framework, uh, right? And uh, discussions here uh, are stalled. Initially, they had uh, official assurances from all the countries, but uh, lately it seems that those from China are missing. Uh, so that's kind of the problem. Uh, there is a staff level agreement uh, as well. The program is ongoing. There is a staff level agreement on the review, uh, but in order for uh, uh, Zambia to go to the IMF executive board, there is a need for official assurances from all creditors. Questions are being asked because common framework, it's a new uh, uh, kind of framework and uh, various creditors don't fully understand uh, how it functions. Uh, so presumably there will be progress in this regard as well. Uh, and uh, Zambia is going to uh, have uh, board approval uh, in a matter of uh, months, uh, not longer. And from that moment forward, they will move to discussions around uh, private sector uh, debt. That's all. Thanks, Nikolai. Sad last word to you. I don't know if you have anything to add on the debt restructuring process, uh, the common framework or lack thereof. And overall, I want to ask you, you know, do you think that EMFIX income can maintain the positive performance that it has surprisingly delivered so far this year? So one quick word on where we are with debt restructuring and the common framework to add to what Nikolai was saying. Um, so, you know, the IMF, World Bank and G20 uh, launched this Global Sovereign Debt Roundtable uh, recently to address some of the criticisms of the common framework, getting on board private creditors as well, for example. And they had, another, they had a meeting of this Sovereign Debt Roundtable um, which includes both the, the major um, uh, IFIs, the G20, and kind of bilateral creditors, um, you know, Paris Club and some private sector uh, representation as well. And they released a, a press release from their meeting last week. And I think it was interesting that the G20 common framework in that press release was only mentioned once and that too in passing. So it seems that um, uh, you know we are back to the drawing board, really, in terms of figuring out how uh, that framework can be amended, um, and uh, you know, and some of the drawbacks of it mitigated. Um, you know, but that's I don't think we've made a lot of progress really uh, on that yet. But you know, efforts seem to be ongoing. And then finally, you know, where to for emerging markets from here? Uh, well, look, I think if anything, this year gives us any lesson, it's that um, we're clearly in a world where um, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of volatility, things that we couldn't imagine to have happened have already happened, in, and it's kind of barely past uh, the first quarter here. So... There's a lot of fog ahead, 
um, you know, our my base case would be off the back of what we've learned uh, last week is, look, there's probably a bit more resilience in the system um, than we thought. You know, we were thinking that after the banking stresses, it's going to be some type of, you know, domino effect and kind of more things are, are going to take place in short order. And while that still may happen, um, it's not something that's necessarily going to happen in a linear way. So I think being a bit agile and nimble um, here makes sense um, and kind of, you know, and as difficult as it is sometimes, you know, being tactical for emerging markets, I think, uh, feels to be the right type of stance uh, to hold. But, you know, I, I think the rates trade for me is still a good, has good runway ahead of it, even if there's uncertainty over timing. Um, FX, a little bit um, kind of more resilient here. And I think credit trades with the beta. Thanks, Ad. Probably the one thing that is helping emerging market assets overall is that, you know, during the last few years of very low interest rates, we did not see this time around massive inflows into our asset class. So their technical position for the most part is rather clean. Uh, and this is probably one reason why we're not seeing selling pressure with all these cross currents that uh, we have all been discussing. So, um, no, um, Sad, Cassiana, Nikolai, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. And thank you all for listening. This communication is provided for informational purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase, all rights reserved. <laughs>